teachers are leaders. And we're here to emphasize the good in education, one practice, method, idea, or trend at a time. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the Teachers Are Leaders podcast brought to you by the Warren Instructional Network, and I'm your host, Andrea Coachman. All right, we are back, and I am very excited for today. I am here with Dr. Paul Thomas. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you a lot. I really appreciate it. Before we get into the meat, this is um, kind of one of my favorite parts. I like to spend a little bit of time sharing with the listeners you know, where you are and where you're from and, and especially for today. So, you know, this is our, our first conversation. We are uh, colleagues via Twitter and our team became big fans of just, you know, what you're saying and what you're pushing out there. And uh, so we, we really appreciate you taking the time to come with us and hang out today. You are currently a, a professor of education at Furman University in South Carolina and are coming up on your 40th year in education as a whole, which, what a feat, that is awesome. But before that, before jumping into teaching these, you know, graduate level teachers and first year writing students, you spent 18 years in public education as a teacher and a coach. Right. Yeah, that was, that. that's definitely my grounding. And that's what I, I still think of myself as an English teacher. It's very hard to forget that, but uh, I'm not an English teacher anymore, but I still think of myself that way. <laughs> yes. I feel like that's where you come from. That's kind of just what's always there in your heart. <laughs> yes. But then in addition to teaching, you know, along the journey, you have also published quite a few things. I mean, you were a former column editor for the English Journal, which is a part of the National Council of Teachers of English. You're a current series editor for Critical Literacy Teaching Series, Challenging Authors and Genres. You wrote How to End the Reading War and Serve the Literacy Needs of All Students, which I was very excited. I saw that and I was like, okay, I need that book for my library. And then Teaching Writing is Journey, Not Destination, Essays Exploring What Teaching Writing Means. I love that. And then I cannot not mention that NCTE named you the 2013 George Orwell Award winner, which is awesome. Congratulations for that. Yeah, I'm still very proud of that one. <laughs> Absolutely. So lots, obviously lots of experience and, you know, living that teacher coach life and, you know, grading essays, you're up before dawn, you're, you know, in the gym on the field and then in the classroom. That's a lot. So this and this, I love, I don't know why we picked up this series, but I really like to take a moment before we jump into the meat and just talk about a favorite memory that you may have from education. This could be from your, you know, back in the high school teaching days or as a professor, just anything that sticks out uh, as far as a favorite memory. Yeah, I think I'll do a, like an overlap because uh, okay. my favorite memory is when I was a 10th grader. So as a 10th grade student, I was sitting in the classroom that about seven or eight years later, I would be teaching. And my teacher was Lynn Harrell, who was my English teacher in 10th and 11th grade, who is the reason I'm where I am now. I actually took his job at the high school, and then I took his position at Furman. It's oh, very, wow. It's a very weird dynamic. But uh, in 10th grade, we, he was he was very student and and um, discussion-based teacher, and I'd never had a teacher like that. He, he had, he's one of the first people in the writing project in the 70s, but 
one day we had a class debate about um, would you serve in the military if you got drafted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I was in high school, you had to sign up for the draft again. It was late 70s. And uh, the room divided, uh, interestingly, with all the girls and me saying no and oh. all the boys saying yes. Oh, wow. And the funny part of this, the reason I remember it is the principal was observing that day. Mm -hmm. That principal would end up being the principal who hired me. And he brought that up in the interview because oh, wow. he actually talked to um, Mr. Harrell after class, asked if I was serious because I was a very, very, you'll be surprised. I was very talkative in 10th grade. No. And, and I was adamant, like I was serious. I wasn't being a devil's advocate. I, right. I, mean, I thought I knew what I was talking about. I probably didn't. Um, but I'll always remember that because uh, Lynn uh, created a wonderful classroom environment mm -hmm. where we loved him, but mainly it was because we got to talk. Um, mm -hmm. And then my connection to him, you know, is, you know, went on for forever. Uh, so right. it was very important. That was an important day for me. Oh, gosh, I can see that. I mean, I feel like that's one of those like. I can just envision it happening. What a powerful, a powerful moment that then obviously, I mean, shaped the rest of the rest yes, of your did. life and career. That's yeah. awesome. I love that. Those are the teachers that, you know, you hear when we talk about these or you talk to anybody and they, you know, reference somebody, a teacher that made a difference. I feel like that is why teaching is such a powerful job and such an important career that oftentimes gets you know, overlooked or um, frowned upon, or it's easy to place blame, you know, on a teacher, which is unfortunate, obviously. Right. Yeah. And I, I've blogged quite a bit. I, I've blogged about Lynn quite a bit. And then Harold Scipio was my high school physics teacher. I've written about him multiple times. He passed away relatively recently, very sad. Um, and then I've, I've written about Ethel Chambly, who was a colleague of mine uh, when I began teaching. And, you know, these people I really love. Uh, yeah. And I will always love them. And that's the human part of this is what I think we tend to miss. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you for sharing. <laughs> and so moving it, moving into why we were very excited about connecting with you. You know, I, I mentioned before that, you know, my team and I have, we've, we fall, I don't know how we originally came, um, found you on Twitter, but it was something you posted that we were like, oh my gosh, yes. Like this is somebody who is speaking our language. We're saying the same things. And, you know, as, as we have discussed, you know, we are currently in, um, in a space where you were hearing a lot about the science of teaching reading and the reading wars and, you know, what's going on and, and talking to educators who have been around, around a while, like, oh yeah, you know, here, here we come again, the pendulum swinging or, you know, been there, done that, the circle comes around again. But I was very interested in some of the things that you've written about in some of your videos on YouTube. Can you share with us a little bit about just the history of science of teaching reading and, you know, where it, the, the different types, like where it was, where it is, what it is and what it's not for the, for, for our listeners, for the people who aren't as familiar as you are. Right. I think the best way to think about it is um, I use a Marvel uh, reference. I'm a comic book collector. You can see them on the wall behind me here. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, so there's a multiverse. Uh, so I think there's three types of science of reading. There's the, I call the science of reading movement, which mm -hmm. I would classify as the media and parents and advocates 
and politicians. So there's the movement and that's the dominant thing because it has the most influence. And a lot of my work, I'm generally talking about the movement. Okay. And then the second aspect of it is the marketing of science of reading. Mm-hmm. And uh, just on Twitter today, I noticed someone, um, actually it's the, you know, uh, one of the most banned authors in America. She was tweeting to another friend of hers, I'm disappointed that you're supporting the science of reading. And when I clicked, this other person was promoting a book that had science of reading in the title. And that's a reality. I'm not even sure that book is a problem. Right. I mean, I don't really know because uh, the marketing is sort of, and I compare it to Common Core. Mm -hmm. So when Common Core came around, all the materials suddenly said aligned with Common Core. Right. Uh, Sometimes without even redoing the books. Right. I mean, you just changed the title. Uh, So Science of Reading has become a brand and it's a way to market. And if you look at Education Week, everything that pops up for reading is science of reading, science of reading, science Mm -hmm. of reading. I get the emails from Ed Week and there's science of reading ads all over it. Uh, So you've got the movement, which is sort of media, public, Mm -hmm. politicians. Mm -hmm. You've got the second level, which I think is incredibly powerful, the marketing and branding of science of reading. And then to me, there is a third Uh, use of the term which I tend to say reading science okay uh, because I think science of reading as a term is gone I think we've lost it there's no way I don't ever use it positively because I think it's completely corrupted Mm -hmm. but there is a body of research on reading that's a century old I mean we've known a lot of this stuff for decades and decades and decades And the problem is that first version, the movement says that the science of reading is simple and settled. Right. And then the third kind, the real body of science of reading or reading science is anything but that. It's extremely complicated. It's in flux. Uh, People like Nail Duke are promoting uh, the active view of reading, which Mm -hmm. challenges the simple view of reading. And I find... Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of the simple view of reading. I've never found it compelling, even though Mm. people say it's got a lot of empirical evidence. Um, But I find Duke and other people, she works with other people, Cartwright and some other people. um, The active view is way more compelling to me. So uh, I really think it's dangerous. What's happened is we've got this weaponizing of the word science and it's politically and marketing weaponization uh, so you see those terms just being used to, you know, someone just tweeted to me, if I reject the science of reading, then I'm rejecting science. And that's just a, it's a simplistic way of thinking, right. uh, because it's certainly I'm a teacher, uh, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. evidence is, evidence is not just what's published in peer reviewed journal articles. The most important evidence are the students sitting in front of you. Yeah. And I've always been a student-centered teacher. So I start with the humans in front of me. What do they know? What do they not know? And what are they confused about? Mm-hmm. And I've always taught that way. And I've always known the research. Uh, and sometimes those two things do not match. Right. I would say in my first decade of teaching, the lesson that I learned was uh, sort of... Um, 
implementing the research with missionary zeal okay. was a problem. Yeah. And I did it. I will tell you right now, like mm-hmm. I was, I mean, a, a arrogant first 10 years, a high school teacher. I was a writer. I was going to teach kids how to write. I right. loved my students. I actually, those students still love me and I have to apologize to them. <laughs> they think what I was doing was good. Um, <laughs> but a lot of the stuff I was doing was actually very harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, I did do some good because my students always wrote right different than I was convinced I was not going to do grammar books I was not going to do uh sentence diagramming we actually wrote um but just bluntly implementing scientific research as Mm -hmm. a teacher is a mistake right it's as big a mistake as ignoring the scientific research yes absolutely well I feel like so we talk a lot about you know science of reading as if it's capitalized like that's the movement versus the research we say that's the like lowercase just the research the body of research (laughs) yeah Yeah. well and I think you know what you just said I like that you 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 have to know the research and pay attention to the research but just doing uh, like only focusing on you know whatever it is the simple view of reading what you know the science of reading uh movement is saying is not the answer just like ignoring it is not the answer and I think that's probably where we're struggling is, you know, you have these districts or, you know, teachers, whatever it is, who are like, well, I have to do this. And, and for us, it has been, you know, mostly in those lower grade levels, only teaching systematic and explicit phonics instruction. So moving away from comprehension, moving away from those best practices that they have done and that they know their students respond to and grow from and trying to just teach phonics for kinder and first grade. And, and that, to me, sounds a little ludicrous. Right. And I think the, the problem to me is um, a valid concern. For sure. That people have raised, because teachers have done it, uh, I'll never forget, right before COVID, I spoke at um, WSRA, Wisconsin uh, State Reading Association. They're wonderful. It's one of the best organizations state-level literacy organizations of the country. Awesome. And I was, that's one of my first public talks on the science of reading. I think I'd done something at NCTE the fall before, but I I was very new to doing presentations on the science of reading. And so I had a a room full of teachers who were very supportive of me. Like they, they liked what I was saying, even though it was critical of science of reading. And simultaneously, they, I don't know how to state it strong enough they really loathed units of study oh like, okay they really and I was like I stopped <laughs> in the middle of my presentation and I said explain this to me yeah so we had a conversation in the middle of my presentation and the room was pretty full I mean it was a lot of people and what I discovered was they were not upset at units of study mm-hmm. the materials no problem right how it was being implemented mm-hmm And the irony of all this is, if the media had brought up that issue, Mm. it would have not have been so, I mean, I wouldn't have been so upset. I mean, that's a problem. For sure. And the weird, the irony or the paradox of all this is the science of reading people are embracing structured literacy, which are almost always scripted curriculum. Right. Which is doubling down on the actual problem with 
other programs. Mm -hmm. And so I've really tried my two things that I try to say as often as possible is my work has two goals and that's to serve the individual needs of every student mm -hmm. and to support teacher autonomy. Yeah, That's the two things I'm about. And if you center the students and you create teaching and learning conditions that support teacher autonomy, then this may not be a, a thing that most publishers want to hear. <laughs> Almost any program will work. Yes. And I when I <laughs> I have a blog post because people always reach out to me. So so what reading program should we get? I literally <laughs> have people sending me lists and I go, you're not gonna like my answer. Right. It doesn't matter. No. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I've looked, there are programs I prefer over others, but they're just resources or they should be seen as not just is not the right word. They should be seen as resources. Right. And if you're constantly telling teachers to teach the program, you're lost. Yes. That's the mistake. Right. Is your teacher addressing the needs of the students and are you providing small class sizes mm -hmm. oh, <laughs> do the kids do the yeah. kids have breakfast and lunch you know mm -hmm. I mean, you know maybe if we gave kids health care I mean there's you know there's a yeah. whole lot of things we could do right. but teachers I, I hear this constantly teachers do not want to be held accountable for teaching programs no. and I've been there I've I started blog blogging publicly around 2012 I think mm -hmm. um and I started blogging. That was my own blog. I started blogging almost a decade before that, right when I went to uh, Furman. But I've got very old posts that say, don't use reading programs. Mm -hmm. And the point was always, I know, I know the practical. You have to have reading programs. I'm, right. not, I'm not being facetious. I mean, I understand that. But it was all, I mean, the woman I did my dissertation on, Lou LeBrant, mm -hmm. I mean, in the twenties and thirties, she was saying that, you know, and she, you know, she wrote beautiful things about the answer is not a program. The answer is a well-equipped teacher in a yes. situation with the students that he or she can be effective. Mm -hmm. And almost always it's she, I think there's a, there's a gender issue to all this too. Mm -hmm. We're, we're very willing to attack educators because, you know, over 70% are women and the elementary mm -hmm. level, it's even higher. Right. Um, so I think a lot of the attack that we're seeing on teachers and, and education is very gendered. Yes, no, it definitely is. Well, I think uh, <laughs> I like what you said about the, well, the last piece about having a well-equipped teacher. And I think that, you know, in the work that we do, it's been awesome because I get to go from district to district and see what different places are doing. And the ones that are the most successful have done, you know, exactly that. They have provided resources for teachers for the needs that, you know, they're going to encounter. And then they, in addition to that, in addition to giving the resources, provide the support. And I do, I mean, if somebody gave me any book or any resource or any program and just said, go do it, you would struggle. So it's, you know, it's not surprising that a group of teachers would be like, no, I do not like units of study. They just threw it in my lap and we didn't implement it. And, you know, the idea of, you know, as a first year teacher, I'm going to need support, you know, first five years, you know, whatever that is, I'm figuring it out. I'm learning what, what I'm good at, what I need help with. But then 
you get you get to move away. You get to start incorporating your own anecdotes and your own stories and tweaking things and you know, having that student-centered environment, rich discussion, and then, you know, supplementing with the resources, I, I feel like that's the ultimate goal. And I also think that's why, you know, you get into education. You want, you were inspired by somebody and you want to turn that around and inspire. And so it's frustrating when, you know, we live in this world where we're living in, you know, because of marketing and politics and things like that, where, we get these different programs, you know, kind of shoved down teachers' throats and that autonomy is taken away. And then under, you know, with the the underlying idea of I'm, quote, helping teachers. And that's not what I see. I don't see that being very successful. No, I, this this is not resonating well, but I, I still see the science of reading movement as anti-teacher movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, another paradox is it's very compelling to beginning teachers absolutely because because i was a beginning teacher and i'll never forget it it's the hardest thing you'll ever do it's not and it is physically demanding too people disregard that Mm -hmm. i know there are harder jobs but teaching the the learning curve is so ugly right and it can last for years and this isn't a popular comment either because I'm a teacher educator, but nobody was well prepared the first no, time. No. It's just a reality. We do the best we can mm-hmm. and we can prepare teachers better than we do. I think there are problems with teacher education, um, but the science of reading has used mm-hmm. a vulnerable population Yes, um, and I understand how it's been effective. Right. And I'm not saying that beginning teachers don't need better support. They do. Um, But I I mean, because they can't do it publicly, I hear from dozens and dozens and dozens of teachers sitting in letters training. Mm -hmm. They I've had people live message me misinformation they're hearing. Yeah. Um, Also, they're veteran teachers. They didn't need letters training to begin with. And so it's very condescending this, I mean, the science of reading movement in the legislation to me is very condescending to children and to professional educators. Mm -hmm. And I I have a policy brief with National Education uh, Policy Center, NEPC. And when you do a policy brief, the last thing you have to do is you have to offer an alternative. You can't just gripe the whole time, which is sort of what I have a tendency to do. Fair. But my point at the end is we need to completely flip the script. Mm -hmm. We've done the reading wars. We've done legislation for decades and decades and decades. We've rarely started with the school. Like, you know, ask the teachers in third grade, in second grade, in first grade, Mm -hmm. in your school, what's working, what's not working, and then what do you need? as opposed to we've already decided for you. And to me, the, the the real frustrating part about this is there's no reading crisis. Again, unpopular position. Right. But everybody wants to quote NAEP, uh, and NAEP data is almost entirely flat for decades. Mm. But one of the, I've got a, I've got a version of the, the longitudinal fourth grade NAEP reading. And, you know, Throughout the heyday, so-called, of balanced literacy, NAEP was increasing. I mean, and then it's 
and it increases really a lot after NCLB, which is kind of weird. Yeah. And then since 2013, when most states, like it's somewhere between 32 and 47 states, you see different numbers. Uh, the most recent, uh, and it was put out by Rankin, Ruby, and I, I'm forgetting the other authors, but uh, they said 47 states. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so since 2013, NAEP has been flat, and then it dropped during COVID. Right. So there's really no evidence that there's a crisis, and there's no yeah. evidence that balanced literacy or Fontas and Pinnell mm -hmm. or units of study or any of that stuff has caused anything bad. Right. Um, what is true is for at least a century in the United States, we've been incredibly negligent. Yeah. Um, and I would say politically negligent. I don't think individual people are necessarily, certainly not teachers and parents are, right. are negligent, but we're politically negligent. We've never, we've never addressed, um, you know, black, brown, poor students. Mm -hmm. We've never addressed special needs students. Uh, Gene Chawl, uh, who some people can refer to as the, the beginning of the science of reading movement. Okay. In the 60s, oh, wow. she, you know, she was writing anti-Ken Goodman stuff. And I will have to say her anti-Ken Goodman stuff was gracious and mm -hmm. acknowledged that they both were credible, like mm -hmm. which is different. Uh, right. She was saying Ken's work is credible, but I disagree with it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, in the end of his life, sadly, I'm friends with the Goodmans. It was very mm -hmm. sad. Like Ed Week published a really nasty piece about Ken oh. Goodman. Uh, the man passed away, spent his whole career on literacy. Yeah. So Jean Chaw in the 60s, if you read her work, uh, we're not teaching enough phonics. Mm -hmm. Sound familiar? Yes. Uh, <laughs> we're ignoring dyslexic students. Mm -hmm. Sound familiar? Like every, I'm, I could name them, but everything Jean Chaw says in the 60s, it's we're saying right now. Mm -hmm. And it's not that none of that has some validity. For sure. It's that we're identifying it wrong. Mm -hmm. And we're never addressing the real issue. Um, there's, I mean, this, I'm not a special needs professor or expert, but to focus on dyslexia, there is not a universal definition of dyslexia. Right. And it's very, that's very problematic. People like Richard Allington has said, if we don't have a clear definition, it's useless. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, he's, he's on one kind of extreme of saying, there's a possibility nobody has dyslexia. Oh, right. Um, and there are people who say that. That's not a, that's not some kind of, there are very strong scholars who say that. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't identify and address need. Right. Um, I will line up with everybody to support treating every uh, or addressing every single student who is identified with dyslexia. I, right. I have no problem with that. Mm -hmm. And for parents who haven't been served in their mm -hmm. public schools, that's wrong. Right. So, I mean, I understand, but it's been weaponized. Yes. Um, I mean, there's 50 decoding dyslexia organizations in the United States. They're impact there i mean sometimes they're they're convincing legislators to treat all children as if they have dyslexia i mean right. that's just there's it's an extreme response mm -hmm. um that is the problem yes no i would completely agree i think we we talk a lot about the extremes i mean i say 
to my son all the time who is four. I'm like, stop living in this, in the extremes. Like, let's bring it back to the middle. You know, he's like, mom, you never let me do anything or you, you never let me have a, whatever it is. But I feel like that is the life we're living in as professionals. And that is, that's the hard part. And that's the struggle is it's not, it shouldn't be that way. And I think that, you know, when you mentioned earlier about you being a student-centered teacher and that when you know all of your students and can recognize their needs, then you can respond. And I think that is what our goal should be. And that has been um, thwarted a little bit with the extremes that we're living with in the media and, and with politicians and all of that. Yeah. And I think, you know, to me, the problem is um, I don't endorse anything right. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. And yeah. I've always, I've always been like that. I like, I, I, I even struggle. I'm a very dedicated member of the national council of teachers of English. Mm-hmm. I struggled with joining a couple of decades ago because I didn't want to be associated with any organization. Right. Because I really, I, I mean, I, it's not neutral, but I am not partisan. Yeah. Um, right. But what really bothers me is demonized uh, things like reading recovery. Right. Or running records. Yes. Um, these things are demonized in a kind of blanket caricature way. Mm-hmm. And they're about serving the individual needs of students. I mean, I'm often discounted as working for reading recovery. And just again, to clarify, I have no reading recovery background. I've never worked for reading recovery. I've presented at reading recovery um, conferences, just like I've presented at tons of organizations conferences. Right. It doesn't mean you work for them. No. But... Uh, you know, I was attacked on social media for being a reading oh. recovery person. And I said, but wait a minute, their central philosophy is serving individual student needs. And right. I got attacked again. So I went to the reading recovery page and screenshot yeah. their statement. And yeah. I said, I'm not saying they do it or don't, Mm-mm. but that's their ideology. And I agree with that ideology. Like yes. anybody that's serving the individual needs of students, I strongly endorse Mm. um and i think it's silly to get trapped in you'll get trapped in don't do reading recovery do og phonics right and i'm like well you're making a mistake there but you know that's sort of a branding approach to talking about things Mm -hmm. um what if we said let's make sure every student gets whatever he or she needs (laughs) and and if if og phonics works for a kid then awesome yes but there's no and again there's no research uh, uh, Orton Gillingham, uh, the multi-sensory approach. Mm-hmm. Research says it's no more effective for kids with dyslexia than any other approach. I mean, again, if we're going to say it's only has to, it has to be scientific, mm-hmm. it has to count for everybody. Now, that doesn't mean there are tons of people I hear from them all the time. OG worked wonders for my child. Mm-hmm. Well, that's wonderful. Good. Yeah. It's an anecdote. It doesn't prove anything. Right. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even prove the OG worked. Right. It proves that situation worked. Yes. And I'm glad it did. I'm Absolutely. sorry that money was spent, but I'm glad it worked. And it's so we get this jumbled, we're getting this jumbled sort of ideological fight mm-hmm. where the weaponizing of science only applies outward. 
Yes. And so the science of reading movement endorses letters, which mm -hmm. has no scientific research behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, it endorses grade retention. And I think that is not intentional, but almost every state that's passing these science of reading movements, uh, excuse me, legislation, are passing grade retention. And there's right. at least 19 right now. And it's sort of called the, it's the Florida model. Um, and then, it, you know, it, it will, you know, endorse a reading program mm -hmm. and say it's science of reading, but there's no scientific research that it actually is. It's just, it's labeling. So this, con and you hear this refrain that balanced literacy has failed students. There's no mm -hmm. research behind Fontes and Pinnell. There's no research right. behind units of study. Well, that, no, that's, that's not true. Like, it's just, it's just saying things on social media. Yes. Um, and uh, there's some really good stuff in reading research quarterly, but there, you know, there's, there's one really good piece that says the science of reading movement doesn't follow the own the, their own guidelines. Yes. And I think that's the fail. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the work of Emily Hanford mm -hmm. from her um, APM articles to her podcast are predominantly anecdotes. Mm -hmm. And again, those individual people, their stories are valid. Right. Absolutely. And they're valid for them. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean this mean, but they don't prove anything. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, I, and it doesn't even prove what they think it proves. I mean, if you're a parent and says, I did X and my kid now knows why, mm -hmm. it's that's not provable. Like it looks like that's what caused it, but it may be coincidental. We have no way of knowing. No. So, I mean, if we all want to work in anecdote or all work in science, mm -hmm. that's fine. I think that's silly to make those two choices, but we can't scream science and function. Well, we can. We shouldn't scream science and then function in a world of anecdote. For sure. Yeah. And that's what's happening, honestly. That And the anecdotes are creating legislation. Yes. That's the horrible part. Yes, and the very frustrating part. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, well. So, th I mean, and that, and it is hard because I feel like you know these are these are the conversations that we have as a team, and obviously conversations that you've had with lots of people, and you know, going through. And I mentioned, you know, our very first episode was with Dr. Tim Rosinski, and we talked. It our episode was called "The Art and Science of Reading," and right. you know, the idea of. <laughs> serving every student and meeting them where they are and using the science to, you know, to drive the instruction, but also knowing our kids and meeting them where they are. I mean, I, you know, I've had conversations with dyslexia specialists and it's like, uh, every kid is not dyslexic and every kid doesn't need everything that that kid needs. And so, right. but I, mean, I think that's, what's also so hard about being a teacher, especially those, you know, those teachers who are teaching students how to read because you're not getting 20 students who are coming in at the same level. And so this idea of, well, let me solve this problem for you. I'll give you a scripted lesson. I'll give you, you know, this, that, and the other. So you don't, you know, you don't have to drown. You don't have to find something else. I'll give it to you. But it, oh, I feel like it's like this this circle, but it's not solving the problem. You know, it's not yeah. getting down to what really needs to be done, which is like what you mentioned earlier, you know, needing, needing to give teachers the tools that they need to be successful and not, right. the answer is not, here's a, a book of scripted lessons that you need to read from beginning to end. Right. And I, to me, it's, um, 
and I think this is the 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 negligence issue. Mm -hmm. uh, first, we have to address the conditions of the children's lives. Right. I mean, the, the the socioeconomic status of the home and the community and the school, and we mm -hmm. never do anything about that. And then second, we have to address teaching and learning conditions in the school. Right. And we don't want to do that either. Um, there's tons of research. Um, uh, black, brown, poor, special needs students mm -hmm. disproportionately have new and uncertified teachers. Um, that's something we never do anything about. Um, and one of those little hidden secrets um, in, um, in education is if you teach long enough, you get to have the good kids. Right. And that's awful. I mean, you, you see people retire and they take all the, you know, the worst classes and they, that new teacher gets that. And the right. next senior person gets to move into the good kids classes. And that's, I mean, it would be easy to address that. That's not difficult to address. Um, uh, beginning teachers actually would thrive better with the, you know, the so-called upper level students who are probably, right. I mean, I teach at a very selective university. Uh, that's not a challenge. Right. I mean, my students are engaged. They want to be there. They want right. to learn. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's not perfect. I mean, there's not, not all humans are that way all the time. But when I taught high school, my AP classes, that was not difficult. Right. Like they wanted to go to college. They wanted yes. to do well, you know, and they were lovely. And ironically, that, my administration, you know, really reduced class sizes for my advanced classes. Like that's where the yeah. focus of the school was. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, quit splitting my 20 AP kids into two right. sections. Yeah. Because that that is that's horrible for those other kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you could have you could have class of 40 AP and probably be okay. <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> uh, well, thinking about oh, I mean, all the things we talked about and I, well, what I want to say, you know, thinking about this, like, what do we do? What, how can we, how can we make a change? How can we start moving the needle back in the right direction? But I feel like, you know, it, I don't know what teachers can do. I don't know what administration. Yeah, and it's difficult because, uh, I mean, we're both in the South. Uh, yeah. <laughs> teachers increasingly have zero power. Uh, right. You know, we're in right to work states. Sure. Um, even in states where where teachers are in unionized situations, that's that's eroding dramatically. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in the South, they're getting rid of tenure. Um, so teacher power is pretty absent. What I don't want to be fatalistic, um, but I think that teachers need to be better informed. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, I think we yes. need to be we need to be able to say there is no reading crisis. We need to be able to say. Um, the problem is not this reading program. This the problem may be how it's implemented. Yeah. Uh, we need to be advocating for our students. Our students need, you know, uh, and I think maybe I can't remember. Texas might have been one of the states that did this recently. Several states have, you know, gotten rid of the um, uh, publicly funded lunches and breakfasts for all students that came about during COVID. And why don't we keep those things? You yes. know, you know, in South Carolina, we did some wonderful things. We had buses driving all over the state, you know, uh, still serving meals. We mm -hmm. had buses driving all over the state with portable Wi-Fi. Um, those were lovely decisions in a horrible situation. Absolutely. Um, 
Sadly, I think it's not that different. Whether we're in a COVID world or not, we should mm -hmm. be feeding our children and we should be making sure they have access to technology. Right. And, you know, these are things we could advocate for. Um, I mean, if you're a teacher, I think you have to vote. Uh, yes. And I think you have to vote for universal health care. You have to vote for, you know, social safety nets. Uh, you have to vote for things that, 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 you know, ensure food security. Food insecurity is a huge there's food, I've got, you know, colleagues here at Furman who do wonderful research on food deserts. And, you know, South Carolina is a wonderful example of how horrible the world is. We've got pockets of affluence and then pockets of extreme poverty. Right. And in some areas like Charleston, they're right beside each other. <laughs> uh, right. You know, I'm in Greenville County in South Carolina. My university is Greenville County is the big, one of the biggest districts in the state. Same thing, same district. You've got these extremely affluent schools and then right next door, just incredible poverty. Yeah. Um, and I think we can advocate for these things um, yes. as humans. I mean, I know, again, it's very it's very dangerous to be seen as political as a teacher. And that's that's a ploy. Telling teachers not to be political is a political statement. And yeah. people in power always tell the powerless not to be political. Right. Um, and I have a great deal of compassion. I do a lot of work publicly because I'm relatively safe. Um, an old white guy who's a tenured professor. Yeah. Um, so I'm not really, re I'm not patting myself on the back. This is right. not a challenge. It's, it's not dangerous. Um, I get some ugly emails and voicemails, but other than that. Um, so, I mean, I really have sympathy for teachers, but I do think teachers need to find a way to be appropriately political in the yeah. sense that not appropriate as far as you know, um, respectability politics, but appropriate in the sense that don't get fired. Uh, right. Yes. Yeah. We are not, we are not asking anybody to do anything. To no, get fired. I don't, and I'm not asking any teacher to do that. <laughs> no. Send me an email. I'll do it for you. I'm, yeah. I'm happy to do it for you. <laughs> yes. No, but I think, I think that's exactly right. I think being informed, I think, yes. you know, in, in my mind, when you say be appropriately political, it is about being informed. It's about saying, no, there's not a reading crisis or no, it is not, you know, what do I need? What do I not need? No, it is not the reading program. It's about implementation. You know, I need support here. I don't need support there. I think that is awesome and very actionable and doable and I, without getting fired. Yes. And I do have a, I do have a blog post that's, uh, a, you know, sticky. It's at the top of my mm -hmm. uh, blog that literally has all the categories of the science of reading movement with the research. So the the movement's message on the research is misinformation is is caricature mm -hmm. uh, so i've got all the there's a, a ton of recent studies on phonics they do not say what the pol political leaders are saying um england has been doing uh systematic phonics for all students since 2006 yes. and their most recent study said they need more balance yes and it's not working they're already done what we're trying to do here and it does not work I did see that. Uh, well, and I definitely will, you know, of all of all of the people and all of the places that you've mentioned, I'll link in to the notes and I would love to link in, you know, your site and your Twitter. Uh, so, you know, people can, if they're not already following you, they can follow you and, and see your, your work, the writing that you're doing, because it is very informative, which is awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Thomas, for being with me today. I feel like 
Um, you know, like I mentioned, we follow you, we read all of your stuff. And so being able to have a conversation has been absolutely amazing. And I really appreciate it. I appreciate it too. I found these, these podcasts and webinars actually have way more impact than my blog mm. post. So I do appreciate oh. the opportunity. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that, but I, well, people, I think people like listening and watching. I do. I think there's something to that. So I appreciate yeah. the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Teachers Are Leaders. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. We are, you know, wherever you find your podcast. And if you're looking for us outside of the podcast world, we are on Twitter at WarrenINPD. And our website is WarrenINPD.com. Hope to see you soon. Thanks.